Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I was the instigator, you probably noticed, of asking Pastor Steve to have you shake hands this morning. I hope that my need was also a mirror of your need, and this was a help to you. I think that there's a spiritual application of how we feel sometimes physically. I know this morning that cold that came through here, Pastor Steve was so generous as to give me his. And uh, it started out with this sinus drainage, messed me up one night, I didn't sleep two hours, and then it's into a full-blown cold now. Got up this morning and couldn't stop coughing for 30 minutes. Woke everybody else, I think, up in the house. Johnny, who usually comes out and joins me in the living room if he sees that I'm out there, heard that coughing and saw the light and turned right around and went back in his room. So I, I would confess to feeling just a little bit like I'm operating on seven cylinders this morning instead of eight. But you know, folks, when you've come through a week of meetings like we have, there's a spiritual application of that same thing. Sometimes a little bit of a letdown. You, you ride such a high, and then you get to the aftermath of the meetings, and you realize that you're back to the nasty now and now, and that old flesh and the temptations that we always have and the ruts that we tend to fall into are still there. And now we don't have every night to come and be pumped up. But we do have the Lord, and that's the most important thing. That, that ought to be our emphasis anyway. Here's a thought for you this morning before we read the Scripture. This has been on my heart. You know, Jesus taught the disciples in that pattern prayer, give us this day our daily bread. And you know, folks, even though we've had a real feast last week in the Word of God, you can't live the Christian life on yesterday's feast. You have needs every day. And I just am praying that the Lord will open our hearts to the realization that it's so important to be here in the house of the Lord today and to get that blessing and instruction and encouragement and help from the Bible that we need for today. Now, I want to begin reading at verse number 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And I don't know where this is going to go because I don't know how I can possibly get this done, but we'll give it a shot. Having therefore these promises, dearly beloved, <clears throat> let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Receive us. We have wronged no man. We have corrupted no man. We have defrauded no man. I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts to die and live with you. Great is my boldness of speech toward you. Great is my glorying of you. I am filled with comfort. I am exceeding joyful in all our tribulation. For when we were come into Macedonia, our flesh had no rest. But we were troubled on every side. Without were fightings. Within were fears. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down, comforteth us by the coming of Titus. And not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent or regret it, though I did regret it. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season." Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, but that you sorrowed to repentance. For you were made sorry after a godly manner, that you might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of. 
but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold, this selfsame thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort, what carefulness it wrought in you, yea, what clearing of yourselves, yea, what indignation, yea, what fear, yea, what vehement desire, yea, what zeal, yea, what revenge. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Wherefore, though I wrote unto you, I did it not for his cause that had done the wrong, nor for his cause that suffered wrong, but that our care for you in the sight of God might appear unto you. Therefore we were comforted in your comfort, yea, and exceedingly the more joyed we for the joy of Titus, because his spirit was refreshed by you all. For if I have boasted anything to him of you, I am not ashamed. But as we spake all things to you in truth, even so our boasting which I made before Titus is found a truth. And his inward affection is more abundant toward you, whilst he remembereth the obedience of you all, how with fear and trembling ye received him. I rejoice, therefore, that I have confidence in you in all things. Our gracious Father, we thank you for the assembling together of God's people in this place today. Father, I thank you for every person that found it possible and important to be in church today. And Lord, though we've come through a, a mighty week of blessing and encouragement and help and admonition, yet if we know our hearts, we need this each day. And I pray, Father, that as we wait upon you now in these next few moments and through the message this morning and through the service tonight, that we'll find exactly the ministry of the Holy Spirit taking God's Word and making it live in each heart according to the individual need that we need and that will honor you. May that be so here today. Bless those of our number that are laid aside. Our Father, we make our petition this morning uh, for two of our acquaintance, Lord, that find themselves in need of thy special grace and our prayers today. We pray for Brother Fred Norris. Pray that you'll comfort him, Lord. Pray that you'll give him uh, that peace that passes understanding. And pray, Lord, that you'll work your will out in his life. Thank you for the courage and faith of his testimony. And Lord, we just pray that you'll care for him through these days. And then, our Father, we think of Helen Allenbaugh. And Lord, we have prayed for her just as we've prayed for Brother Fred through these days of illness. And we don't question your will and plan, but as it seems that the end draws near, we pray that that verse that we read in the Psalms will be found true for them and for their relatives, precious in the sight of the Lord as the death of the saints. So bless these families today. Bless our brother Marty. Care for him and meet his special needs that he has today. And then our Father, even as our hearts go to people like this, we would not be selfish, but we would acknowledge that each of us here today is a sinner. Each of us here today has a heart which is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Each of us has needs even if we don't know we have needs. And we ask that you might cause us to hear this morning in such a way that our needs will be met and bless the ministry of thy word today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. I guess I have ever how many open Sundays I want because I'm between series. 
And so this morning, I would like to preach to you a message on a subject that's been a great deal on my heart. I call the message this morning, When is Repentance Real? Or you could turn it around and make it not a question and just say, When Repentance is Real? If I wanted to, and of course it wouldn't be wise, I could spend the entire time just telling you why that subject has been so deeply on my heart. I think that subject is often on the heart of a man in ministry. But I would relate to you two things in our recent circumstances that I think make it appropriate to talk about this subject today and to at least try to preach this message. First of all, I'm not telling you anything when I remind you that we are in the, fact, in the midst of a national tragedy and a national crisis. Now listen, please don't get your hackles up because I am not speaking this morning as a Republican or as a Democrat or as an Independent or anything else. I'm just relating to you the facts of what's going on. To be perfectly frank with you, I think the greater tragedy is not what has happened, but the reaction to it. But we are, in fact, in the midst of a national crisis. I'm not so sure that when the history books are closed on what happens in the current affairs that confront our nation, it will not prove to have been a watershed experience. When confronted with a situation in which the highest public official in our land has proven himself unworthy of that office by reason of having demonstrated that he lacks the foundational ethic and requirement of that office, which is honesty and integrity, and when that individual proves himself unwilling to step down from that office, and when the American public, if you believe the polls, finds itself unwilling to demand that he do so because otherwise conditions seem favorable, and what really matters anyway is what's in my best interest, then I say to you that we have a crisis that's greater than what's taking place in the White House. We have a national moral crisis. However, may I simply say this, our president has told us that he is sorry. Our president has told us that he has repented. When is repentance real? Many, many believers, as well as many just average folk who make no profession of faith or claim to religion, are grappling right now with trying to process that question in trying to make a value judgment on the things that they have heard and the things that they have seen. When is repentance real? Can you know? Second item. It would be very easy for me to stand here this morning and just shuck the corn on the subject as I have introduced it so far. But that's just one example. Let me bring it down to something so that we can see the necessity of a personal local church application. We have also just been through a series of meetings. We have on occasion been called to the altar. We have been confronted with God's Word. Have we responded in the way that God would have us respond? You know that this morning and I don't. I have enough trouble keeping myself figured out, but there is probably a distinct sense this morning in which as you sit here, you know whether or not God touched your heart with something specific and something that needs changing in your life. You also know whether you responded to that in any form, and beyond that, you also know whether or not your response was genuine. 
When is repentance real? Let's start here. Is that a fair question? Someone comes along and says, wait a minute, preacher, you are dealing now in the realm that uh, the Bible has put off limits. Doesn't the Bible say, judge not that ye be not judged? Doesn't the Bible say that we are not to look on the outward appearance because the Lord seeth not as man seeth because man looks on the outward appearance but God looks on the heart? So you're dealing now in an area that's very gray, if not very thin ice, because you're dealing with a value judgment that you're not permitted by the Bible to make. Wrong. If I were to stand here this morning and tell you that I know for an absolute fact that you, and I named your name, did not respond genuinely to a certain issue in your life, I would be wrong for that, because ultimately I cannot finally see your heart. If I were to stand here this morning and say to you, I know beyond an absolute, I, I know absolutely beyond any shadow of a doubt that Bill Clinton is a fraud in what he has said to us, not only over the past seven or eight months, but in his apologies, I think maybe I would be out a little bit too far on the limb. But if I were to say to you this morning that that is a fair and biblical question, I would not be out on a limb. Let's just think of a scripture that I think you know very well. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, I don't think you need to turn. Here's the story. John the Baptist, Baptist had a ministry. He sounded a particular theme in that ministry, did he not? There was a particular thing that was the theme of his preaching and his message. He told people to repent. Yes, he did. Now, there was a day when John looked, and among the other people who were coming to his ministry and responding to his preaching, there were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. You remember that? And in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 8, he looked at that outfit and he said to them, Who hath warned you to flee from the wrath to come? O generation of vipers, he called them. And then he made this statement, Bring forth therefore fruits meat for repentance. Do not let that word meat throw you. You're thinking of M-E-A-T, and you look in your Bible and it's M-E-E-T, and you're still not quite sure what that means. Many of you, I think, know, but a good, simple English synonym for that would be fit. Fit fruits. Bring forth, therefore, fruits that are fit for your profession of repentance. Fit fruits. Now, what are fit fruits? Well, fit fruits are fruits that are in keeping with your situation or your sin. Now, folks, I realize I'm still in the introduction, but let me ask you to grab a hold of this for a minute, because do you realize what he was saying? Do you know most people would find themselves under tremendous temptation as a preacher or an evangelist? Here you have people coming to your meetings. Man alive! He excoriates these people. He calls them a generation of snakes. And in essence, he says to them, I will not baptize you, which is the outward token of a genuine repentance unless you can do something to convince me that your repentance is genuine. Now, Jesus told us that we cannot ultimately see the heart, but he certainly told us that we can see fruit. That's true when you evaluate repentance, and that's true when you evaluate someone's profession of faith. Is there their fit fruit? And the Bible does tell us that we can do that. Jesus himself said, by their fruits ye shall know them. 
Now then, let's get into this a little bit this morning. In what we're going to do is use a real live set of circumstances from the church at Corinth. If you know anything about Paul's relationship and ministry with the people at Corinth, you wouldn't say it was an understatement if I said to you this morning it was a bit on the stormy side. You would not contradict at all the fact that this man loved those people. You can't read these epistles. They are among some of his emotional, most emotional writings. And nowhere is that more clear to you than if you have the ability or have ever had the opportunity to, to read them in the original. Because his Greek just goes haywire. It's just like some of us. We get choked up or you ever gotten a letter from someone that they wrote when they were very emotional and you could just kind of tell. They just, their thoughts are not as logical. They're not as arranged. And not to say that his thoughts are not logical, but his grammar is irregular. You can tell it. You can sense it not only in what you read from our English translation, but you can tell it even more emphatically when you look at the original language. No one could ever make the mistake of coming to the conclusion that Paul did not love these people. In fact, he loved them so much that when they needed to be rebuked, he rebuked them. They didn't respond very well. Not in the beginning they didn't. And so there was a period of time in which his relationship with them was strained at best. It was stormy. It was difficult. This was a deeply troubled church. Now things are on the mend. Things have gotten right. They've repented of their attitude. They've repented of their actions. They've repented of things that were wrong in their church and wrong in their lives and wrong towards the Apostle Paul. And he's rejoicing. That's what this whole chapter is about. Were you able to sense that? It had brought such a relief to him. Now, let me speak personally for a moment. This is an illustration, and then I'll make the comment. You ever had a boil? Man, that thing is, the, is a pain, literally a pain. And it bothers you and bothers you and bothers you, and it doesn't feel especially good when you lance it. But when you lance it, oh, what a relief it is. And that's like this chapter. You read this chapter, and man, the boil's been lanced. They've gotten the thing patched up. They've got the thing settled. And Titus has brought back the news that God has blessed Paul's rebukes that he has sent to them by way of an epistle. That may be 1 Corinthians. It may be a letter that we don't possess. We're not sure. Commentators differ on that point. But Titus has been there. He is Paul's dispatched representative. And instead of holding him out here and resisting him, they have received him. God's Spirit has worked in their hearts. They have repented. They've gotten things straight in their church. They've gotten things straight in their lives. And you can just tell as you read this chapter 7, he is so relieved. I'll tell you one thing. This is the truth. When you're in church work or even when you're just a church member and something's not right, it's terrible. If you really have a heart for people, if you really love people, it's a terrible burden to bear. And when that thing is finally fixed and that thing is finally made right and God brings a victory, it is such a sweet thing. And that's what's going on in this chapter. But now, why was Paul convinced that their repentance was sincere? Well, you have that in verse 7. Now, you folks are going to think that I've been listening to Brother Coffee too long all week because this sermon, you know that my sermons don't normally have more than about three points, sometimes two, sometimes four, but usually three. This one has seven. That's why you see me being worried. Don't worry, I won't keep you more than an hour over time. 
and I may have to do more with this later. I'm just going to do what I can do this morning. But the text is verse number 11. He says, For behold, this selfsame thing, that she sorrowed after a godly sort. I'm convinced, he said, your repentance this time is genuine. What carefulness it wrought in you. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Yea, what indignation. Yea, what fear. Yea, what vehement desire. Yea, what zeal. Yea, what revenge. Seven things. I'm holding up four fingers and saying seven things. But anyway, seven things. In all things ye have approved yourselves to be clear in this matter. Now, beloved, here's what I'm after this morning. For our nation, as we evaluate what's going on, it is important that we not be political. It is important that we be biblical. Correct? These issues are too serious to be politicized. And there will be those people who stoop to that. And we will have to be careful ourselves that we maintain our objectivity. But as Christian people, it is imperative that we be biblical in our outlook. While on the other hand, as we evaluate our personal lives, as we look past the national trauma that we are undergoing and may yet be more to undergo, we evaluate honestly our own circumstances because we've had our own struggles with sin. We've had our own problems in our lives. How can we tell? How can other people tell? Maybe that's a more pertinent question. Because nine times out of ten, you don't have people fooled. How can you tell? How can I tell? When we look at our own lives, how can other people tell when we've really done business with God? And this text will help you chart those waters biblically for yourself, for the nation, for any other circumstance that you need to evaluate. Now, I'll do what I can in the time I've got left this morning, and I'll make a decision at the end of the message where I'll go from there. Number one, seven hallmarks of true repentance. Seven hallmarks of true repentance. Number one, he says, behold, what clearing of yourselves. I'm sorry, after a godly sort, what carefulness it hath wrought in you. Carefulness. You say, well, preacher, I am by nature a careful person. I get in the car. I fasten my seatbelt. I check the gas gauge if I'm going very far to be certain I have the fuel to get there. But that's not so much what this is talking about. Not in that sense. In a spiritual sense, maybe yes. It's the word that literally means haste or speed. But when it's used in a context like this, let me give you two words that you can fasten onto right away and you'll understand them perfectly. Earnestness or sincerity. Earnestness or sincerity. The first hallmark of true repentance, and you can mark this down, is sincerity. I tell you this morning, without embellishment, without the need really to elaborate, because I think this point makes itself, that if a person is not sincere in what they do, if they do it for an ulterior motive, if they come forward because the crowds are coming forward, if they do it to grandstand, if they do it because they've got big-time legal problems, and I'm just trying to illustrate without making a conclusion, or other difficulties in their life, if they do it for reasons, any other reasons than that they are sincere, totally sincere in what they do, it fails the first hallmark of true biblical repentance. Now, I say this is easy to understand because also the word earnest is just as good to use. And we are very familiar in our society with the concept of earnest money. Now, let's say I go down to the gun shop 
and I look in that case, and I may just sort of be walking into the store, I know I really don't have the money to buy a gun. But I like to look, and I'd like to think I could buy one. So I walk up to the counter, and I look through that glass, and I see a beautiful 45 Auto. Man, it's a Colt combat government model, or a Delta Elite. And I look at the man, and I say, how much is that gun? Well, I don't know what he's going to tell you, but you can mark it down. It's going to be over $750. Ouch! But I knew he was going to say that. Well, I get to look at this thing a little bit more, and I say, could I look at that? Well, I get it out, and I look at it, and think to myself, man, this thing would, I would like to have this gun. So I say to him, look, I don't have $750 plus today, but I, I have a little bit of money, but I don't have that much. I get paid next week. Would you hold this thing for me until I get paid next week? The man says, sure, I'd be happy to hold it for you. Now, here's the thing. I only have one of these in stock, and it takes a while to get them in. So I'll be happy to hold it for you, but I need a $200 deposit. Right now, I have a decision to make. It's because I know I don't have that money, and I also know that the money I do have, I may have the $200. I know that's supposed to be for the kiddies, for groceries, or for bills that I have. And so I say to him, well, uh, let me just see how things go. I'll, I'll, I'll check back with you next week. What does he know? He knows he isn't totally sincere. He might be sincere in his want, but he's not totally sincere. First hallmark of true, genuine, biblical repentance. Look at the verse, number two. Yea, what clearing of yourselves. Now this is one, and I hope you'll try your best to listen to these explanations, because this is one that you'll see why this translation is used in a minute, but you have to, you'll have to follow me for a minute to get there. This is actually the term in the original language that we bring directly into English as the word apology, because in Greek it's the word apologia. So it comes directly into English as the word apology. Now look, you could stop right there and do some preaching, and you'd be accurate in what you were saying. You could say that the second hallmark of biblical repentance is, not, is number one, sincerity, and number two, an apology. And you'd probably be right in that thought. We'll see that later, depending on when we get to it. But I tell you, that is really not the thought that's in this verse and in this usage of the word. And the reason that I say that is because in Greek, that word apologia, in its original meaning, was not the sense of apology, at least not the sense that you and I normally think of apology. It's the sense of apology in the sense of, if you've ever heard of this discipline of biblical study, it's the sense of apology in the sense of apologetics. And if you know what apologetics are, they don't have to do in biblical studies with making an apology. They have to do with making a defense. Illustrate it for you. Acts chapter 26, verse 2, you don't need to turn. Paul was saying to Agrippa, before whom he was about to speak and answer those charges that had been lodged against him by the Jews, he said in verse 2, I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day. And there it is, verb form of the word. I shall make my defense. I shall make my apology this day, touching all things whereof I am accused of the Jews. Now, you say, wait a minute, this doesn't sound right because didn't we hear earlier in the week, and yes, you did, correctly so, that when a person is truly repentant, they stop being defensive. So why are we talking about making a defense? Hang on. 
You see, there are two directions that this thing goes. If you think a man, in a legal context, he's been charged with doing something wrong, there are going to be two ways that you can go with this concept. One way that you would go would be you would clarify something in those charges that was not true, would you not? Would you be wrong for that? If you were charged with a crime, or if you were accused by a brother of something, and there was no substance, there was no basis to that allegation, would you be wrong in clarifying that and pointing out that that was simply not true? No. But what about if there are aspects of that accusation or charge in the court of law or between two brethren that are true? Now then, you have an obligation to set that right. It goes both ways, see? You're going to clarify what it is about the accusation that isn't fair or isn't true. That's okay. But when you get confronted with that which is, is true, now all of a sudden the obligation that you have that comes out in this word is to fix it. And that's why you have the translation clearing of yourselves because now the interest that you have is to get this thing cleared up. You want to get this thing cleared up. Beloved, what this says in practical terms is that when the Spirit of God really works in the heart of an individual and really produces biblical repentance, all of a sudden there is a genuine desire for things to be fixed. There is a desire for things to be right between our, us and our God and us and our fellow man. All of a sudden it becomes very important to us to be right with God and to be right with our brother or sister in Christ. And I would say to you this morning, if that hallmark is not there, if we can live day in and day out with things in our lives that we know are not right, we are unwilling to go to God, we are unwilling to rectify that with a Christian brother, I do not believe that full and genuine biblical repentance has occurred. I don't think you find it here. Number three, it gets interesting as it goes along because he says, thirdly, yea, what indignation. Now, you say, preacher, that sounds like wrath. That sounds like anger. And aren't we supposed to divest ourselves of those things? That's not right for a Christian to have that in his life, is it? Well, if it's sinful anger, you'd be absolutely right. But to use a context that was referred to in the auditorium Sunday school class, do you remember, this is Matthew chapter 20 and verse 24, do you remember when the children of Zebedee, James and John, and their mother depending on which account you read there, apparently they were both involved, they put forward this question to Jesus about they could, could they sit on his right hand and left hand in the kingdom? They wanted the two best positions in the kingdom. And when the other ten heard that they had made that request, Matthew chapter 20 and verse 24 says that they were moved with indignation against them. They were upset. This word right here. Now is there room to be upset in your Christian life? Well, you see, it's one thing if you're upset with somebody else. Sometimes that gets to be wrong. And this is where this idea that we heard about in one of the messages this week of being defensive comes in because have you ever noticed that when you're not right with God, you have a way of blaming everybody else for your problems? Have you noticed that about human nature, that we have that tendency? But here's the thing, you see, when you really get right with God and the Spirit of God really plows deeply in your heart and there's a genuine biblical repentance there, yeah, you're upset, but you know, you know who you're upset with? You're upset with yourself, you're upset with sin, and you're upset with the devil. You got indignation. You get a real good old-fashioned case of being angry with the devil. 
Now plug that into the Corinthian experience. Because you see, now that the Spirit of God had really shown them, and if you evaluate this in the light of the two books, here's what had happened. They realized that the devil had succeeded in getting in there and putting a wedge between them and the Apostle Paul. Their relationship with their beloved father in Christ had been disrupted. They saw for the first time what that carnality and that refusal to follow and be admonished and respond had caused in their relationship with him. They saw how it had disrupted the church and hurt the church. They saw how, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 11, it had given an advantage to Satan. And when they saw it through those eyes, genuine biblical repentance, they were upset, no longer with Paul, themselves, sin, the devil. You know, beloved, when genuine repentance is in the life, we're upset with ourselves. We're upset that we could have failed the Lord the way we did. We're upset that we've caused the problems that we've caused. We're upset that we've behaved ourselves like the absolute jerks that sometimes we do. Are you seeing that nationally? Are you seeing that personally if the Lord has been dealing with you? Number four, he says, yea, what fear? Fear. Perfect love casteth out fear, so the Bible says. So this is another one that's a little difficult to plug into. But this word in Greek, phobos, phobia. People have phobias, right? We know the word. It ranges in its breadth of meaning all the way from I'm scared to death and running like a scared rabbit from something to reverential awe or reverence or fear in that sense. Notice verse number one. Perfecting, the last part of the verse, holiness in the what? Fear of God. There's the usage. Now what's it talking about here? Well, he is referring to their relationship to him. And you can tell that by reading verse 7 when he says, not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, and look at the next phrase, your fervent mind toward me. Because you see, they had contested his authority, they had resisted his admonitions. Turn to chapter 10 because I don't want you to think I'm making more of this than what's here. It is absolutely what is here. chapter 10, notice verse 7. Do ye look on things after the outward appearance? If any man trust to himself that he is Christ, let him of himself think this again, that as he is Christ, even so are we Christ's. For though I should boast somewhat more of our, what's the next word? Authority. Did Paul have authority over that church? Did he? Did he? He absolutely did. He had apostolic authority and he had pastoral authority. Did that make him a dictator? No! But that doesn't diminish, beloved, the fact that we have known and seen examples of people who abused authority does not lessen the fact that the Apostle Paul and any man of God by position, for that matter, the husband in a home, for that matter, a governmental official, a policeman, a judge, has invested in him by virtue of the office that he holds a certain authority. They had resisted that authority. Look at the verse again. For though I should boast somewhat more of our authority which the Lord hath given us for edification and not for your destruction, that's abuse. I should not be ashamed. Here's what they said. 
that I may not seem as if I would terrify you by letters, for his letters say they are weighty and powerful. But his bodily presence is weak and his speech contemptible. And then he tells them, you better think again, buddy. Let such an one think this, such as we are in word by letters when we are absent, such will we be also indeed when we are present. I tell you, beloved, many a time we have made the mistake. We have mistaken meekness. In the life of a servant of God in whom the Spirit of God has wrestled under control a desire to respond in the way that the flesh would respond, and we have mistaken that meekness, that strength under control like you heard this week, we have mistaken that for weakness. And he set them straight on this point. He had been meek in his dealings with them. He had leaned over backwards. He had taken guff and lip and carnality off these people. And he reminded them, when push comes to shove, and when the need is there to take a stand, and when God requires of me to take stern action, you better step aside. You've made a bad misjudgment. You see, when we kind of get that cocky attitude, and we kind of get that fearless attitude, this is a problem with our society. People go around with these crazy things, no fear. That's not a biblical concept. We are to submit ourselves one to another in the fear of God. If we find ourselves out of fellowship and out of submission to our Christian brother and sister or to constituted, biblically constituted authority, we have an authority problem. And I want to say something to the teens this morning. Sometimes you think you get preached to, but I'll tell you, there are more adults, I think, than teenagers that have authority problems. Just watch how the adults respond when the authority deals with their child. Just watch what happens when the cop pulls the teen over and gives him a ticket. Watch what happens down at the magistrate's office when the dad or the mom goes down to have a thing to say. I have seen this at ball games. I have seen this in every walk of life. And I think we all have to fight this temptation, but I'm going to make this very practical. This fear that had been restored to their lives was a wholesome biblical reverence for Paul and the position he occupied and what he was basically saying to them was yeah I know you've got real repentance in your life now because your authority problem solved folks I'm going to tell you something if you have an authority problem and it's not solved God hasn't gotten to the bottom of the barrel yet look at the verse number five vehement desire you go back up to verse seven and you'll find out what that's talking about because it's translated earnest desire in the middle of the verse. He told us your earnest desire. This is a word that means longing. It's used in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2. A newborn babe will what? Desire the sincere milk of the word that he may grow thereby. A longing. You know something? In biblical repentance there is a longing. What is that longing? Look at verse 7. Your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me. There is a longing that things be right. Now let's go down to the hog trough. Are you awake? I won't keep you much more. We're going to go down to the hog trough for a minute, and there's a young man, probably a teen, maybe in his early 20s, I don't know, young man. He had an authority problem. He couldn't get along with his father. He resisted the rules that were in his father's house. Do you know something? I don't think he had a perfect father, but man, I'll tell you one thing. He had a father that loved. 
He is down there by that hog trough and he came to himself. Isn't that what the Bible says? Genuine repentance hit in his heart and life. And what did he say? He said, I will arise and go to my father and will say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. Hey, now see, there is a longing. I will arise. And I'll tell you, plug this into your own life and ask yourself this question about your situation, if there is not a longing, but that there is still a refusal, if there is still a foot dragging, if there is still a resistance to see a relationship that you know is not right restored when the fault is on your end, you haven't come to the bottom of the barrel yet. Six, zeal. Yea, what zeal? Funny to find that word there. It's translated up in verse 7. This verse, again, helps us understand this. That last phrase, your fervent mind, your zeal. Where was the zeal directed? Toward me, Paul says. But I want to generalize because I think I've already made the point about the Apostle Paul and simply say this, and I don't have time to say more. It's simply this. You know something? You can tell when a person has gotten away, and you can tell when you've gotten away from the Lord, when you kind of become cold and indifferent. And maybe you don't mean to, but... If you, beloved, look, if you find yourself this morning and God spoke to your heart maybe this week about this, I don't know. All these people at the altar, I didn't go around and ask you. You didn't come ask me. I don't know that. I only know that if you find yourself this morning and you know for a fact that you're on the sidelines, you used to play ball. You used to be in the huddle. You used to be on the team. You used to throw passes. You used to tackle people. And you find yourself on the sidelines, and not for a good reason, but just basically because you've dri drifted into that position of careful carelessness and lethargy and apathy spiritually, probably God has not gotten a hold of your heart yet because when God does, you know what happens? When you come to this altar and you really get right, you know what infuses your life in a new way? Warmth and enthusiasm and zeal for your church, for the work of God, for your Bible, for witnessing that is a hallmark of true repentance. And lastly, revenge. Now this one takes a, qu a quick explanation too because you say, doesn't the Bible say, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. So, preacher, I have you on that one. No, you don't have me, you have Paul. He put it. But let's explain. You see, the vengeance that God says belongs to him is when you're going to avenge something that has been done wrong to you. See, if you do me wrong and I say, that knucklehead, I'll fix him. And then that, no, <laughs> vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. And that's not the wrong we're talking about. See, when it's the wrong that you've done, when God's gotten a hold of your heart about the wrong that you're in, maybe it's big, maybe it's small, I don't know. But when God's gotten a hold of your heart about something that's wrong in your life, now it's time to avenge that. Now it's time to put it right. And I'll close with this. Look, I have a heart that's fuller than you recognize and understand this morning, and I can't convey this, but when the subject of repentance comes up, I've spent 26 years listening to people repent, seeing people profess to repent, and evaluating my own response when I've needed to repent. And I think I have some practical experience as well as the Bible to corroborate what I'm going to say next. When a person really gets right with God, he sets out to avenge the wrong that he's done, that is to put it right. And how many times have you seen situations where people have come with their little grin and their little apology, or they write their little letter, out of one side of the mouth they apologize, out of the other side of the mouth they take two more side swipes at you, perhaps confess that they have 
cut your throat from ear to ear with all manner of people and then tell you they're sorry and expect you to run down to forgive them and accept their repentance as valid. Well, I go back again to this passage as well as this illustration. I go out with you to the woods one day to cut wood and I say, man, oh man, I've got a Mickey Mouse Sears chainsaw and he's got a beautiful steel. That's a nice saw. About a $400 saw. So I succumb to the temptation. I slip around there to your barn after dark and I take the chainsaw. Well, I use the chainsaw. I enjoy the chainsaw. I say, man, this has got this Sears job all beat to pieces. This is great. I get to feeling bad about it, though. I hear a sermon, and I realize I've really, I've stolen from you. So I show up at your door, and I knock on your door. I say, Brother so-and-so, you've been looking for your saw? I know you've been looking for your saw. I, I have it. I confess I took your saw. I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And he's doing this. He's looking for his saw. Would you accept someone's apology who came to your door and said, I stole your saw and I want you to forgive me, but didn't bring the saw with them and had no intent of returning it? He said, that's far-fetched. Oh, no, it isn't. Because you think about this. When you are critical, when you gossip, when you talk about other people to other people, you are a thief. Just like the guy that stole the chainsaw because you've stolen a person's reputation. Some people, their job depends on their reputation. The President of the United States is one such person. His job ought to depend on a valid reputation. The pastor of a church is another such person. His job ought to depend on a valid reputation. That's why the Bible gives him a special protection when it says in the pastoral epistles against an elder, receive not an accusation but before two or three witnesses. Somebody comes to you and says, nobody else? You don't have any witnesses? Shut up. That's basically the way the deacon board needs to handle situations like that or any other person in the church. You realize that just as assuredly as I've stolen your chainsaw, a person that goes around and sows seeds of discord and is critical of a deacon, a trustee, a Sunday school teacher, a principal, a Christian school teacher, a pastor, you're a thief! You've stolen something that's virtually irreplaceable. And then you say, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? Absolutely, I'd be more than grateful and glad to forgive you, but when I see fit fruits, when I see you attempting to rectify that, when I... The sermon ends here because the cassette tape on which it was recorded back on September 27th, 1998, ran out. Those old cassette tapes had a way of doing that, didn't they? But let me attempt now to conclude that sermon for you just as I did, much as I did back then when it was originally preached. So when I see you attempting to rectify the wrong done, when I see you not just apologizing or sending a glib note, but actually going to the people you've talked to and fixing the wrong, then I'll have a much better sense that your repentance is genuine and forgiveness can be heartfelt and done with assurance. Paul said that by these seven things, the Corinthians had proved themselves in this matter. That is, they had shown by fit fruits that their repentance was genuine. So let me ask you this. Let me ask myself this. Has our repentance gone deep enough to convince anyone? Has it had about it these evidence that Paul describes here? Years ago, the Methodist evangelist Harry Morehouse was preaching one night. In that meeting was a man by the name of Ike Miller. Ike Miller was 
a wicked cold miner, a man who had a very bad temper and a tendency to drink. And when he got to drinking, he would oftentimes go home and take that temper out and mistreat his wife and his children. Well, people were excited. Somehow Miller was in the meeting that night. They were excited. They'd been praying for this man, and they let Morehouse know that Miller was in the meeting. Well, when Morehouse heard that, he preached with all his heart that night. But when the sermon was concluded, Miller didn't respond the way people had been hoping and praying he did. At least it didn't seem that he did, because the moment the meeting was over, he made directly for the door and disappeared. What they didn't know was that where Miller disappeared to was he went straight home. He gathered up his wife and his children. He kissed his wife. He took her and the children in his arms, and he began to sob. And when he began to sob, he prayed a prayer that his mother had taught him years before. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, look upon a little child. Pity my simplicity. Suffer me to come to thee. A simple prayer, a prayer in rhyme, you say, but something that he knew from childhood from his mother and something that he prayed that night with genuineness and sincerity. Beloved, when God touches our heart about something that's wrong in our lives, when repentance is something that's necessary, May our repentance have about it the hallmarks that Paul described here. May it be like Ike Miller that night. You know, you have the sense that Ike Miller would certainly have been someone who, if he had lived in that day and had gone to John the Baptist, John the Baptist would have gladly baptized because he brought forth fruits, meat, for repentance. May our repentance, when it becomes necessary, not be shallow and unconvincing, but genuine and real.